thank the Lord for the privilege of having your words so that we can know who you are and Lord, we can know what you have done through your son. And Lord, that we can also know how we are to live um, in obedience to you. So Lord, today as we are gathered together, may we humble ourselves before your word. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me, Lord, to be a faithful mouthpiece for you, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, friends, the Bible that we hold in our hands was breathed out by God over the course of about 1,500 years and by over 40 human authors. The Apostle Peter says in his second book, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. In other words, it's not man that's writing this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's work. And we're also told in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for instruction, or training in righteousness. And we recognize that this Bible comes to us really in two volumes. And I realize this is stuff that we know, but I'm working our way to where we are here in Acts. But, but hear me out a little bit here. The Old Testament, which gives us the account of God's creation of the world and mankind, it is also the account of his dealings with his chosen nation, Israel. He reveals himself to them. He provides for them. He delivers them. But over time, they continue to sin and they disobey and they rebel against him. And so God, by his mercy, forgives them, provides them a deliverer. He places also the establishment of sacrifices, which are atonements for their sin. But each of those sacrifices are pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, which is the Messiah. The New Testament, of course, is the record of that Messiah, the coming of Jesus, his authenticating miracles, and his message of reconciliation through the cross, where he would be that sacrifice once for all. And if you remember the words of John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 29, he points to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice. And so, in the New Testament, we have the Gospels, and those Gospels give us the life of Jesus. And then we have the Epistles, which are the Apostles' letters, which explain and clarify the implications of the Gospel in life, explain what Jesus taught them, and further what we need to know as his children. And friends, it's important for us to see how this all works together. If you remember, in Luke's Gospel, in the 24th chapter, Jesus is with his disciples, and he tells them that everything written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms is written about him and must be fulfilled. So Jesus looks back at the Old Testament, and he sees that in the Old Testament that he is predicted. And then what we find as we come to the New Testament, in particular in the Gospels, Jesus then is on display. He is revealed. But friends, what we need to understand in the Gospels is that the record of Jesus, that it's not just some myth, it's not a fable, it's not a legend, or the crazed thinking of a radicalized Jew, but it is the true story of Jesus researched, recorded, and given to us by verified eyewitness accounts. Friends, repeatedly, man who has been shaking his fist at God, who doesn't want to submit himself to God, seeks to study God's Word so they can turn it on its head. And more often than not, the people that do the studying are converted because they see the authenticity of the very Word of God that He has revealed to us. They affirm that an honest look at the historicity and the accuracy of the Bible will only prove 
that it is true, that it is trustworthy, and it's worth being listened to. And after Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven, and sandwiched between the Gospels and the letters is this book of the Acts of the Apostles. And you've heard me say it a number of times now. Dennis has said it too. The Acts of the Apostles are not really the Acts of the Apostles, are they? They are the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ who is in his ascended place at the right hand of the Father who is orchestrating the affairs of the spread of his gospel by the Holy Spirit through the apostles from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It's a wonderful story, friends. And it's not just a story. It's a wonderful historical record of how God, through the apostles, took the gospel across that known world. And friends, throughout history and throughout the history of the Bible, we find mankind seeking to live life apart from God who created them. And in doing so, they create a God of their own image and they create the kind of worship that goes with that, that created God of their own image. And they, they create their own and the rituals and practices and images and idols and magic and incantations and amulets to go along with the worship of those gods. And friends, there's no greater city in the Roman Empire at the time of the book of Acts that was the hub of pagan religion than the city of Ephesus. And that is where we are today. Ephesus boasted about 250,000 people. It sat right stab in the middle, the heart of the Roman Empire at that point in time. It was so important that it was the Roman capital of that region of Asia and a major trade route that took everyone through this city. So it was, it was cosmopolitan in nature and people wanted to go there because of its importance. It also was the home to one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, which is the Greek name, or Diana, which is the Roman name. You see, the Romans worshipped many gods, but their favorite was Diana. Now, this temple was built on a hill above the city. And at night, hundreds of temple prostitutes would descend into the city so that you could worship with them. This is the kind of context that the Apostle Paul is coming into as he's bringing the gospel into the city of Ephesus. Paul arrives in Ephesus and he starts ministering the word. We saw that last week. He does that with the disciples, some disciples of John. They're converted. He goes into the synagogue and there are some conversions there, but they are, he basically is run out of that synagogue after three months and he has to find a place to meet. And so they find this hall of Tyrannus and for two more years, he preaches and teaches so that, we're told in verse 10 of Acts chapter 19, so that all the residents of Asia, think that's a, a large region, like, like size of California, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul, having been in Ephesus for about two and a half years, maybe three years, has been faithful to the point the gospel has been heard in that region. So with that as the backdrop, we're ready to venture into our text today. Luke, the author of Acts, wants to show us some of the events that took place while Paul was ministering in the city of Ephesus. He's not giving us all the events. I mean, two and a half years is a long time, right? There's a lot of activity, there's a lot of interaction. So he's choosing some specific events to show us some important things that took place there. One of my family's Christmas traditions growing up was for my mom and dad to show their slides from their lives all around the world. Both my parents were born and raised in India, so there was always some fun stuff there. Um, my father worked for British Airways in places like Iceland and the Sudan and Nairobi, and also, of course, they lived in India. And so I always found it fascinating when they would show them. Of course, it was a fun time, too, because my mom and dad would eventually be arguing about, oh, this is such and such place. No, honey, it's not that. It's this place. And so it was fun just as much as it was enjoyable to see the places they had been. 
Well, see, this is much the same as what Luke is doing with us here. He's giving us a slideshow. He wants us to see one of the events. He wants to draw our attention to something that is important. And the events that happen in our passage today are taking place while Paul is ministering the word in Ephesus. Don't think of this now. Then oh, he's, he's been there two and a half years. Now this happens. He's doing the ministry of the word. While he's doing the ministry of the word, this is happening over here. You get this? All right, so th these things are kind of functioning in conjunction. And our text is broken down into three sections. The power of God, verses 11 and 12. The power of darkness, verses 13 through 16. And the response of the people. Now, what Luke wants us to see, he wants us to behold the mighty power of God that radically changes people's lives. He's already shown us the power of God's word. But now he wants to show us his power on display that will authenticate that word and will change people's lives. When he's writing to the Philippian church, this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hear this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The power of God is at work through his children, in his children. And he wants us to see this power and to be amazed, but also to be changed. It's one thing to be amazed. It's another thing to be changed. Let's just jump in here. First of all, the mighty power of God, verses 11 and 12. So while God's mighty power had taken root in the hearts both of the Jews and the, the Greeks by the faithful preaching of God's word, his power was also on display through the extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. I first want us to notice the power source. Luke wants to make sure that we clearly see where the power is really coming from. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, right? It wasn't, and Paul was doing extraordinary miracles that somehow God was present with. It's God doing the miracles by the hands of Paul. Yes, Paul is the one performing the miracles, but it is God who is the source of that power. That's a very important distinction, not just for us, but for Luke as he's making his case here. Now, we've already seen God's power on display through the apostles in the book of Acts. The sick and the lame have been healed. The demon, uh, demons have been, have been liberated from people. The dead have been raised. Prison doors have been unlocked. And many hearts have believed in Christ, giving them new life. And although it's been the apostles who were performing miracles in the book of Acts, it's always been God by His Spirit that has been the source of this miraculous power. And by Paul's own words, these signs and wonders are what authenticate the gospel and their message. Just listen to what he says, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. He's making an argument in 2 Corinthians about his apostleship. But he says this, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. In order to be an apostle, not only did you have to be with Jesus, you were taught by Jesus and you were given the authority to carry out these sign gifts. And friends, healing and deliverance were never meant to be the end in of themselves. I think this is a real confusion for people. They think that, you know, God must heal me. He never says that he's promising to heal you. Jesus didn't heal everyone. In fact, Jesus picks particular people out, and he heals particular people. He, it's, it seems arbitrary, but it's his love, to, to, it's his grace shown to one person. If he was healing everyone, then everyone would be healed, but they're not. Because the physical healing was never really the focus. God certainly is compassionate. He cares about our struggles, but he's more concerned about 
the greater need and the greater healing, which is the spiritual healing that we all need. That's the new birth in Christ. Just think about it. What good is it to heal a man who's a cripple in life, but to let him remain in bondage and condemn him for a life of eternity without God? God certainly is compassionate. He cares about our struggles. Scripture is full of that. But he's far more concerned about man's eternal standing before him. Now, the question for all of this is this. Do we believe in the power of God? You know, we can be so intellectual. We can know a lot of things about the Bible. We can know a lot of things about God. But do we actually believe that he's powerful? Do we believe that he's at work? We believe that God's power is still at work in the world we're living in today. Now, the reality is, friends, that the signs and wonders that the apostles were performing died out with those very apostles. In other words, the apostles, as they died, so did these apostolic, uh, this apostolic authority to heal the lame and to cast out demons and to raise the dead. That doesn't mean that people are no longer healed. But they're not healed because... I'm an apostle and I'm touching someone. They're healed because we're praying for someone and God then chooses to heal. It's a completely different mode. It's not a man who has a certain power. It's God's people who pray and God does the healing. It's a different context, different situation. So you and I don't have the same authority given to us as was given to the apostles. We still have God's power. Just let me list a few things here. We have power through prayer and the preaching of his word. There's power through our witness and obedience in this world. There's power through a demonstration of our love for one another and the world around us. Now we can seek to do all those things in our own power, but what we need is to do those things with God's power working through us. And we're called to be humble. We're called to be faithful, trusting that God will work His power through us. The Apostle Peter reminds us 2 Peter 1.3, that his divine power has granted us many things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Friends, do you believe in the power of God? It is, as Luke is emphasizing here, God who is the source of power. However, there's also this power surge these extraordinary miracles. Did you notice that in the text? There are these extraordinary miracles. God's power is seen by the hands of Paul who is performing these extraordinary miracles. So that even handkerchiefs were told and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. The surge of power was so extraordinary that simple, sweaty garments worn or used by Paul were taken to the sick, the disease the demon possessed, and people were being healed. Now, the handkerchiefs, of course, what someone would use to wipe sweat from their face. The apron was used maybe in a workshop, in a workplace situation to protect the clothes, but also any grime and dirt from the workplace and sweat and all that kind of stuff would be taken out. Of course, remember, Paul was a tent maker. He was also a teacher. And if you remember from last week, the likelihood was that Paul would go and be a tent maker in the morning, and then from like 11 till about 4, he would go to the hall of Tyrannus, and he would teach for five hours. That's the middle of the day there in that context, and it would be hot, it would be sweaty. So I think there was a lot of handkerchiefs around. There's probably a lot of aprons around that were being used too. It's a lot of sweat, a lot of handkerchiefs, a lot of aprons. Now, we're not told whether Paul was active or passive in this process. In other words, we don't know whether, you know, here's Paul and he's wiping his head off of his sweat and he's giving it to someone to say, go heal someone. We don't get that sense of what's going, that's going on in the text here. The, the idea, I think the sense we have is these things are happening and people were grabbing these things and God was condescending to a culture that was so consumed with with the occult and magic and things like that, that these things were going out and they were bringing healing to people. These were not ordinary miracles. I mean, it's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? These are extraordinary miracles. I mean, I thought a miracle is a miracle. But this is an extraordinary miracle. Why? Because it was simply the fact that these garments touched him. 
Wow, it's pretty powerful. But it is a reminder of the encounter that Jesus had with the woman with the issue of blood. So desperate she was with the crowd that was surrounding Jesus, she just thought, if only I could just touch the hem of his garment. And she did. And the moment she did, she was healed. It's a very similar event, a very similar healing that's going on. There is this power surge. And as Paul reflected on his ministry journeys, he says the following as he writes the church in Rome. This is Romans 15 and verses 18 through 19. should be up on the screen there for you. He says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ had accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. You see what he's saying there? I went into these places and I have preached the word and I've also been used by God to perform these incredible deeds. And these deeds authenticate the word that is being preached. So this miracle in Ephesus is an example of, what's, of what Christ's power was doing through Paul. So now as Paul is at work in the pagan city of Ephesus, God is saying through Paul, now it's not recorded here, but you can understand what he's saying. He's saying this to Ephesus. Ephesus, you think you're powerful. You think you're the center of everything. You think that your magic, your amulets, your pagan worship, your pagan practices, and your worship of Diana has power. Well, think again. Ephesus, because the God of Israel, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sustains the world and orchestrates all that takes place in it, the God of Israel is in town, so you better pay attention and to listen to Paul's message and believe in Christ, the Messiah. We're ready for a showdown, friends. We're ready for confrontation. So we move now from the mighty power of God, secondly, to the mighty impotence of man, which seems like a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction because it's on display. In this section, man's impotence, his powerlessness, is on display for all to see. And Luke wants us to see man's profound inability to replicate God's power and that his attempts to do so expose his arrogance and weakness. Now, Ephesus being a pagan city, as I've mentioned before, was full of magic and pagan practices. And because of the worship of Diana and other pagan gods, the streets would be full of vendors selling charms and amulets and potions and idols and prayer books, all boasting blessing, all promising that if you use them and put them in your house or you read them or you say them, that you're going to be healed, that people, you know, demons are going to come out, all signs, stuff like that. So it was a very spiritual culture using that language, but it was pagan spirituality. So when news that Paul was in town performing miracles and that his power came in the name of Jesus, the various charlatans out there looked to harness that power. Enter the itinerant Jewish Exorcists. Let's read verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over these who had evil spirits, or those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of whom Paul proclaims. Now, one, there's something here that should have just kind of caught your attention. Because I read verse 13. And I don't know about you, when I, when I first read it, where it mentions itinerant Jewish exorcists, I had to scratch my head. Because those words, Jewish exorcist, shouldn't go together. If you're a Jew, you're a child, a descendant of Abraham, right? You are a worshiper of Yahweh. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, strictly forbids the practice of magic or divination. Listen to Deuteronomy 18 verses 10 and following it says there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering that's all referring to Molech worship 
Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. But all of this kind of behavior was in Ephesus. And who do we find doing it? Jewish itinerant exorcists. It's like, huh? <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? One commentator says this, Ephesus was the water hole for every kind of magician, witch, clairvoyant, and criminal. Con artists, murderers, and perverts all found the climate of Ephesus usually agreeable. But in spite of God's clear instructions, there were Jews who would travel from town to town selling their trinkets, offering to speak for the dead or to the dead, and, and selling spells to cast out demons and the like. They had taken their Jewish roots and they had mixed them with mysticism. So they were Jews, but they were also mystics. And history reveals that they were commonplace in that day. And friends, it's a reminder of the terrible state of Judaism, both in the time of Christ and during the season of gospel spread there in that known world. And it's a reminder of man's tendency to drift away from the truth and to intermingle it with pagan thinking. In other words, this kind of syncretism, the, the mingling of Jesus with the pagan practices and thinking of the world, it's ever before us, friends. It is present with us, and we need to be discerning to see it. It might even be residing in your heart today. So do you see what they're doing? Can you comprehend what these itinerant Jewish exorcists are thinking? If Paul can heal people in the name of Jesus, hmm, so can we. We want that same power, so we'll use the same name of Jesus in our incantations and prayers, and we will see demons cast out. We will see people healed, and we're going to make a lot of money doing it. Friends, just as using the name of Jesus Christ as an expletive is an offense against God, so is using the name of Jesus as an incantation to harness his power for our own purposes. We don't go to God demanding that our prayers are answered. We don't somehow shout the name of Jesus and then say, see, you have to do this now because I use the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not some mystical spell that we throw out. All of our prayers are to be done according to the will of our Father. Lord, this is what I desire. This is what I'm longing for, if it be your will. The moment we take the name of Jesus as our own, I want to say, spiritual power tool to get what we want, we have offended God. We've distorted what it means to be a follower of Christ. We must recognize that the name of the Lord is precious and not to be taken lightly. Now Luke, wanting to show the mighty impotence and powerlessness of man, shifts the slideshow to a group of men known as the seven sons of Sceva. Notice what it says in verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. It would appear that these seven sons were a known entity in Ephesus. They're identified here by their father's name and his status, a Jewish high priest. But there's a problem as you go back and you look in history, and there's a record of who the high priest is. There's no record of Sceva being the high priest. So either he was a charlatan who was using that name for his own benefit. I mean, the average person is not going to be able to know if you once were a high priest or not. Or he served in another capacity. 
But friends, in my mind, I see these seven sons of Sceva kind of coming into town, you know, with some fanfare. You know, here we are, the seven sons of Sceva, you know, I should be using more kind of Jewish kind of, you know, music and stuff like that, you know. We are the seven sons of Sceva, come to relieve you of your suffering. Here we are. Hey, right, I and mean, something like that along the way. Here they come. We're there. We're here. Look at us because we are the seven sons of Sceva. By their title, they were rooting themselves in the heart of Judaism. By their practice, they were mystics willing to use any power available to suit their own ends and to make a profit. But they had not encountered the power of the one true God of Israel. They had they didn't know the power of the risen Savior. They did not experience the power of the Holy Spirit. But clearly, in the providence of God, it was time for them to receive a lesson. And a lesson they would receive. The seven sons of Sceva had entered a house, we're told in verse 16, and used the incantation which is given to us in verse 13 or something like it in an attempt to expel an evil spirit from a person. But the response is not what they expected. I mean, we're using the name of Jesus. This is the Jesus that Paul was speaking about. But they are confronted and exposed both verbally and physically for the frauds that they are. Notice, first of all, they are confronted and exposed Verbally, verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Now, I thought about this. If you're wondering what to say to people who come to your door on Halloween night, this is what you can say. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? It's a biblical response to Halloween, right? I mean, just think about it. In all seriousness, the question, who are you, clarifies that this is not a formula in which the name of Jesus spoken somehow accomplishes what the person saying it wants to happen. In the spirit world, the issue isn't what is being said. The issue is the person saying it. Okay? The evil spirit recognizes the authority of Jesus. Isn't it interesting? Every time Jesus encounters an evil spirit, what happens? That spirit either recognizes him or submits to him. And Paul has the authority given by Jesus to carry out these same signs and wonders. He has authority. And it's interesting, the demon knows that. He doesn't have to be told that. He's aware of that. But he looks to the seven sons of Siva and says, I don't know who you are. So there's a verbal confrontation and exposing that takes place here. See, the the name of Jesus is not a magical device or a trinket that we can share or pass around so that people can harness divine power. Only those who are empowered by God, who have been given the authority, can do that. Of course, that was given to the apostles, not to us. So what's important about Paul is not his name, or that he uses the name of Jesus in exorcisms, but that he recognizes that it is God who is at work through him. That goes back to verse 10. It's God at work through the hands of Paul. So the seven sons of Sceva are confronted and exposed verbally. Secondly, they are confronted and exposed physically. And friends, this part of the encounter is both alarming and amusing, isn't it? It's alarming to see how strong and powerful the man possessed by this evil spirit is. And it's humorous to see what happens to these men to some degree. The man possessed by the evil spirit does three things. He leaps on them. And now let's just put some things in perspective. One man, seven sons. One man is leaping all over the place in this house on seven sons. Those are good odds for the seven sons. But they're terrible odds when you realize who they're messing with. He masters all of them, we're told. In other words, he controls them. And he overpowers them. 
It's a clear statement here. And you have to ask yourself the question, who is being exercised from this house? Is it the demon or is it the seven sons? It must have been a chaotic scene inside the house. I'm sure that tables and chairs had been broken. Oil lamps and curtains and mats were all in disarray. Bits and pieces of clothing are littering the floor and then clambering out of the windows and the doors as fast as they could come the seven sons of Sceva, naked and wounded, we're told, from the encounter. Humiliated and running for their lives as fast as they could and for all to see. And friends, it's clear for all to see and for the seven sons, the mighty power of God through the hand of Paul and the mighty impotence of men who seek to use God's power. Now friends, following Jesus is not like following pagan religions. Power is not in the incantation. It's not in the repetition of prayers. It's not in the, I would say, just getting the words out, so to speak. It's not in the symbols of Christianity. Rubbing a cross in your pocket will not do anything to stop or ward off the, the, the evil spirits that are around you. It's just a piece of wood. It's a piece of metal shaped like a cross. The verse of Scripture you have tattooed on your chest won't stop you from sinning. Having multiple Bibles sitting around your house, which we all have, won't keep evil out of your house, not unless they're being picked up and read and obeyed. A physical Bible is not an amulet or a lucky charm. You don't say, well, I keep this Bible in my, in my car because I, I want to be safe as I drive. Look, pay attention to the signs in your speed limit and you'll probably be safe. This won't do it for you. It's, 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 yes, it's the Word of God, but this is paper. This is, well, it's bonded leather. It's not real leather, but it's nice. It contains the Word of God. It reflects the Word of God, but the physical Bible is just paper. It doesn't somehow create a safe space for you. Lighting candles or, 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 or sprinkling so-called holy water does nothing except create ambience and smoke and get things wet. Touching the tooth or bones of a dead saint won't take your disease away. I would be more concerned that I would catch one. And friends, all of that is pagan religion and foolish superstition. It's a distraction from what God calls us to. See, superstition says, I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to listen to what God has to say. I can just go over here and I can rub my whatever or I can, I can bow down to this thing here or I can somehow light this candle and that will solve the problem. No, it won't. God doesn't want you to practice superstition. He wants you to be in His Word. He wants to be shaped by the Holy Spirit who's working through the breathe outward so that you could be conformed to his son, Jesus Christ. But religion says, all I need to do is you know, go here and take this and, 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 and rub this and have this in the presence and that's everything. It's not dealing with the heart. It's just ritualism. And friends, this has been a huge issue since God created man, and it remains a huge issue in our country, and in particular under the big umbrella of all who claim to be followers of Christ. Now, some of you younger generation won't know this word, but some of our older generation will. It's the word tele-evangelist. And some of us we know some of those old televangelists, right? We, we remember those things that were on. This is when you're surfing your TV years ago. Click, click, click. You remember the click you would hear, right? And it was like, why, why are these televangelists always on like, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night? You're trying to find something and this guy is up there. And what is he doing? He's saying, look, all you need to do if you want to be blessed, if you want to be healed, is send us this financial gift. And you can receive this holy handkerchief or this blessed bread or this divine prayer mat. And when you pray, you will be blessed. Your finances will be multiplied. You're so close to receiving this blessing, they would say, all you have to do is pledge your $100 and it can be yours. Friends, all of that's a distraction from what Jesus calls us to do. It is a deceptive tactic by people who want to use God for their own benefit. 
But people are naive and they buy into that kind of stuff. And part of it, friends, is that walking with God takes work. It means spending time in the Word. Allowing it to wash you in your heart and reorient your thinking and focus your attention and encourage you for your living and shows you what God expects of you and how to go about living your life for His glory. But it takes work to do those things. It's in that same sense, and it's really no different than what the the Catholic Church was doing in the 1500s by the hand of Johann Tetzel, who's selling these indulgences to people to raise money for the building of cathedrals. They went out to various places all over Europe saying, look, we need need to build these, these cathedrals, so how can we do it? Well, we can sell indulgences. Well, in in the Catholic system, there's this thing called purgatory. And when you die, you go into purgatory before you go to heaven, in theory, right? That's what they taught. And so now you all die and you go to purgatory. But you don't know how long you're going to be in purgatory. And you're going to be suffering in purgatory. You really want to be in heaven. And you know, your loved ones who've died are in purgatory. So we want to help them out. You can help them out by buying this indulgent. And it's a piece of paper. It's a document that promises that they will be, you know, 10 years less in purgatory and they can get into heaven sooner. Don't you want your family to get into heaven sooner? Yes, I do. Money, 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 money. Great. We can build the cathedral. Your people are in purgatory less and we're all happy. Except it's all nonsense. It was a manipulation of people who were ignorant, who trusted those who were the church at that particular point in time. And it really sparked and reinforced the, the, the rebellion that ushered in the Reformation. It's an abuse of God's power. It was a horrible abuse of the people. Friends, God's power at work in us doesn't come through the signs and wonders. In other words, we should, as a church, be coming to church looking for the signs and wonders. We don't measure the health and the greatness of a church because of the signs and wonders that we see, because you're not going to see them. You come to church because you want to do what God has instructed us to do, and that is to sing together as God's people, to pray together as God's people, to fellowship together as God's people, to humble yourself before the Word as God's people. And through those spiritual disciplines, God is working on you. He's growing you to be more and more like His Son. What Jesus and the apostles teach us is that God's power is at work in us and through us we feed on his word, when we're following his will and seeking to live our lives for his glory. Pagan religion wants to harness the power of God without submitting to the authority of God. And it wants to harness that power for its own selfish benefit, not for the glory of God. Remember, friends, what we read, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It is God who is the source of this incredible power. It is God who answers our prayers. It is God to whom we must pay attention by listening to and obeying his word. It is God who gives us the strength to face the difficulties and trials in our lives. God's mighty power. The mighty impotence of man. And third, the mighty impact on mankind. How did the people respond to this powerful encounter between Paul and the seven sons of Sceva? Well, Luke wants us to see how God's power witnessed to unbelievers and convicts believers who are seeking to follow his will. Notice, first of all, a growing witness among all. And this is the Jews and Greeks. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. First of all, it became known to all. The events of that day were posted on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. They were reported on the evening news and talked about on the local talk shows. The town crier went around the city of Ephesus saying, hear ye, hear ye, hear all about it. The seven sons of Sceva suffer serious shame. But what truly became known to all, both the Jews and the Greeks, is God's judgment 
on the Jewish exorcist who sought to harness his power for their own benefit. He exposed their arrogance and everyone could see it. So it became known to all. Secondly, notice the results. It resulted in two things, fear. And fear fell upon all of them. This was no small demonstration of power, friends. Not the demon's power, although it was strong, but God's power because he was greater than the evil spirit. You know, Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uses and quotes Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If the demon terrifies you, then what does that tell you about the absolute, omniscient, omnipotent power of God? You think the demon is strong, and he is. What does that tell you about the power of God? Who created and controls that demon. So it's fear. And we should respond in fear, but it's, it's a fear that is reverential to God. But you recognize as a witness that this is God. I am going to pay attention to him. And so that's why we see, ne- see next, and the name of the Lord was extolled. There's praise. The word extolled means lifted up, right? People began to praise the Lord Jesus. And in light of what we read in verse 20, you might want to drop your eyes down to verse 20. It says, so the word, this is a summary statement of verses, uh, chapter 16 through 19 here. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's where I got this word, mighty, in our sermon here today. They're praising the Lord. They're praising His power. They're praising who He is. And and likely what this is referring to is that those who were observing this, who were also hearing the word of God over here and see the authentication of the, the, the Apostle Paul through this miraculous power are now coming to faith in Him. But not only that, there's an impact on those who are already believers. What we have here is a wonderful description of the kind of repentance that takes place in the lives of believers. Now just hear this. There is repentance necessary for salvation. You come to God, you say, God, I, I, uh, I have completely sinned against you, and I confess my sin, and, and I, I repent. I'm going to turn my life uh, completely around, but I'm, res- I'm responding to your a wonderful granting of forgiveness. And so I am now one of your children. But now you're one of God's children. There's still a need for repentance. Why? Because all of us, as we entered our Christian walk, we have been saved. We bring with us all these habits of thinking and behavior into our Christian life, right? We drag these bags and ropes full of things that we used to do And that sting still linger with us. And sometimes we still struggle with and do. So conversion doesn't mean that you're fully aware of all your sinful tendencies. But it does mean that God will, over time, through his word, be exposing your heart to your sinfulness. And when he does that, he calls you to repentance. So what does that repentance look like? There's three things that that are revealed here. Verse 18 First of all, we'll see radical confession, radical confession. And many of, the, of, the, of these who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Do you see that? How they have seen God's power on display over all right, this, this, this demonic presence and shaming these seven sons of Sceva to the degree that they're now saying, We need to deal with our sin. They confess and divulge their secret and sinful practices. Confession, friends, is agreeing with God that what you are doing is actually sinful and that it requires His forgiveness and it requires your work to weed it out. Confession is disclosing to God the secret sins in your heart, your lust, your hatred, your fear, your evil thoughts. Confession is also disclosing to God your sinful practices. Yes, God, my pornography habit is a sin against you and my wife. 
God, you are right. I am a gossip. It is true. Confessing it, see? Yes, God, I did lie at that interaction, and I was deceptive. I'm confessing that to you. You are right. How can I stand before you as a mirror and say anything different? You reveal the heart, and now I'm confessing it. That's what they did. Secondly, there's not only radical confession, there's radical amputation. You say, what is that? That seems really weird. Look at verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Do you see what's going on here? They're not just confessing that they had still these lingering connections to these magical arts. They're saying, we're going to get rid of anything that's going to influence us in that direction. We don't want it around. So we're going to cut it out. We're going to find it. We're going to root it out. And we're going to bring it out. And we're going to burn it. Now, it's not that Paul was standing there with his disciples, you know, with the whip saying, you got to do this. You got to do this. Go, come on, get in the house, get those books. It wasn't that. This is all willful, joyful response of people who want to be conformed to God, who are realizing their sinfulness and want to radically amputate the habits of their sin, the lingering presence of their sinful practices out of their life. And you know what it's like, I'm sure. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 5, if your right eye offends you, what do you do? Pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, what do you do? Cut it off. Why? For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Now, that's figurative language, right? I don't want anyone plucking their eye out or cutting their arm off. The point is, this is serious stuff. If you want to make progress in your Christian walk, Root out the lingering presence of the sin that you're confessing. Radically amputate it so it's not there. You can't even go back to it. Do you have any boxes in your garage where you're storing old life sinful habits? Do you have files on your computer hidden away that you could tap into if you want to that are there because of your old sinful habits? habits. Root it out. Cut it out. Remove it. Not only is there radical amputation, but there's a radical sacrifice. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now notice they didn't take their books and sell them on eBay. Which would be a temptation in our day, wouldn't it? I've got all these things. They're all part of my sinful past life. I'm going to make money off of it. I'm going to, no, no, no. They didn't just throw it away. They burned it. They didn't want anyone else to be affected by it. It was a way to demonstrate their wholehearted commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and their turning away from their sinful practices. Now, what they did with their radical amputation was costly, 50,000 pieces of silver. It said that one piece of silver was about one day's wage. In today's context, if one day's wage is $100, this would work out to be about $5 million. This was no small burning, friends. I'm sure there would have been people that were around, what are you doing? That's all expensive stuff. And we're burning it. And we're happy to burn it. Why? Because Christ matters more. Now, I'm not saying we're going to go out in the, you know, the parking lot here and bring all this stuff we're going to burn. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not manipulating you to do that. But you need to know when God reveals in your heart the sin that is there, don't just confess it. That's only part of the process radically amputate it. Maybe you need someone to help you radically amputate it and ask you questions about what are some things that might be there that are going to open the door for you to go back to it. If it's not there, it's hard to go back. And do it even if it's costly. Because what's more important? You enjoying life now or you enjoying life for eternity? These are, these are heavy implications, friends. True repentance is costly sacrifice. It demonstrates the true heart of the one who's seeking to be restored to God. Well, let's just bring all this to a close.
I want you to notice the last verse. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail. And just step back and think of chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, where we saw the word is preached. In our passage, we're actually seeing in verses 1 through 11, or sorry, 11 through 20, the word is authenticated. See, the point of these signs and wonders weren't that we would, oh, let's come back and get some more signs and wonders. The point of the signs and wonders was to point to the word being preached by the Apostle Paul and to listen to it and to submit to it and to be refreshed and restored by it. The power of God has been on display again and again. So three very simple questions to finish up with here today. Number one, will you believe? Will you believe that your superstitious religious practices are empty? That Jesus is the true Messiah? That Jesus is what and who you need to bring satisfaction to your life? That without Christ, you are without hope? You see, that's ultimately where Paul was going with his message. He wants them to know Christ. Secondly, will you repent? And I think sometimes in, the, in our Christian cultures, we, we get desensitized to this because we kind of pat each other on our back, right? Uh, we were in our equipping class the other night, you know, we were talking about you know, a support group of guys getting together and say, you know, they're, all, they're struggling with pornography. Well, how much pornography did you watch this time? Well, it was about two days. Okay, oh, okay. Well, it's better than last week. It was three days. Okay, good. You know, well, kind of, well, okay, we're doing better now. It was, it's less than it was before. Element of truth. But we get kind of satisfied rather than someone saying, what are you doing? I mean, you don't sit around in a support group of, you know, of axe murderers and you say, hey, John, you know, how many people did you kill this week? Uh, it was just two this week. Oh, that's better. Last week was four. Okay, good job. Keep it up, all right? No. It's sin. And we need to encourage one another to chip away at our sin. Not just pat each other on the back and say, oh, that's okay. Now, element of truth, you want to encourage people who are struggling. I get that. But we can get so comfortable with sin in our presence that we're no longer speaking out to say, look, Brother, you need to confess it. You need to radically amputate it. You need to deal with this. It's going to be costly, but it's worth it. Will you repent, confessing your sin, amputating that sin out of your life? Will you live your life as a disciple of Christ? See, friends, we've been given his word so we can feed on it. And we can listen to his instructions and be obedient. And we can rejoice as we do his will. It's going to be imperfect. But it will be such that it will be glorifying him. And as a church, let's, let's have a community in a context where we realize people are going to sin. We are sinful creatures. But we're going to help one another to sin less. But we're going to speak and be honest and truthful about the effect of that sin and the seriousness of that, of that sin and the wonder and the beauty of the restoration that comes through forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You see, the power of his word, that word is authenticated, but it's all not just done for them, it's also done for us, friends. Pick up his word, feed on it, love it, enjoy it. And just like we, we heard at the beginning of our time today, all the different things that it does when we just say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm kind of going at this wrong. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to read it and I'm just going to see its effect on me. Let's together live for his glory because he is an incredible, powerful God who's drawn us into this wonderful relationship with him and called us to live our lives by his power and for his glory. Lord, help us today. As we take, Lord, the, the different aspects of this passage, consider, Lord, where we are in it. Maybe, Lord, we're really trying to be one of the seven sons of Sceva. We love to use the name of Jesus. We love to, to use it as a tool to to, to meet people and interact with people, but we're not really submitting to the Lord. We're just using Him. 
Or maybe we're people who are far more superstitious than we think. And we try and manipulate our way to you. Lord, help us to strip ourselves away from that. And Lord, maybe there's aspects in our life that sinful tendencies, sinful habits, sinful behaviors that we've, we've kind of stored somewhere in secret. Lord, give us the tenacity to root them out. Give us, Lord, the desire to radically amputate them from our lives so that we can be conformed, Lord, to what you're creating us to be. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.